0: First reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26 and beginning at verse 36. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So, could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come to the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. My betrayer is at hand. Second reading is taken from the book of Lamentations, chapter 4, and beginning to read at verse 1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The sacred stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious children of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, How they are reckoned as earthen pots the work of a potter's hand even the jackals offer the breast to nurse their young but my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness the tongue of the infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst the children beg for food but no one gives them anything those who feasted on delicacies perish in the street those who were brought up in purple Cling to ash heaps. For the chastisement of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, then no hand was laid on it. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, their hair like sapphire. Now their visage is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. "'Their skin has shriveled to their bones "'and it has become as dry as wood. "'Happier were those pierced by the swords "'than those pierced by hunger, "'whose life drains away, "'deprived of the product of the field. "'The hands of compassionate women "'have boiled their own children. "'They became their food "'in the destruction of my people. "'The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. "'He poured out his hot anger.' "'and kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. "'The kings of earth did not believe, "'nor did any of the inhabitants of the world "'that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. "'It was for the sins of her prophets "'and the iniquities of her priests "'who shed blood of the righteous in the midst of her. "'Blindly they wandered through the streets,' so defiant with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people shouted at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. It was said among the nations, they shall stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. We were watching eagerly for a nation that could not save. They dogged our steps so we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in heaven. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The Lord's anointed, the breath of our life was taken in their pits, the one of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter Edom, you that live in the land of us, that to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourselves bare. The punishment for your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter Adam, he will punish. He will uncover your
1: sins. Sometimes, this week included, as we have heard, the world can be a pretty dark and terrifying place. And the question I want us to think about this morning is whose fault is this? Where, if anywhere, are we to apportion blame for the pain, suffering, and death which dominates the media and sometimes our own lives also? This is not an abstract question asked out of theological curiosity because the issue is too real, too raw for disembodied philosophy. What I want to know, in very real and concrete terms, is who I can blame for the awful realities of so much of human existence. The ever-wonderful Stephen Fry gets to the heart of this issue, with an interview in which he sees the suffering of humanity as the final and clinching proof of the non-existence of God, as Douglas Adams once famously put it when talking about the Babel fish. Anyway, let's watch the clip from Stephen Fry now.
2: Suppose
3: what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations,
1: suppose it's all true,
3: Mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think I'll say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. And you think you're going to get in on no, that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about them not believing there is, a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that I ever got in this entire series.
1: (laughs) The logic which Stephen Fry uses here is fascinating. In a nutshell, his argument is that if God exists, then God must be held responsible for the sufferings of humanity. But that such a God would be so monstrous that atheism is a better alternative. For Fry, the sufferings of humanity are not ultimately God's fault because for him, God does not exist. Rather, they are the responsibility of natural processes, such as competitive evolution or random genetic mutation. So, who to blame for suffering? Well, says Stephen Fry, blame nature. Now, we need to be careful to hear his argument in the context of the ongoing attempts by some Christians to discredit the theory of evolution by asserting their belief in an all-powerful, benign creator God. And I think that in this debate, Stephen Fry's argument is highly effective. Let me say this very clearly. I don't believe in the God he doesn't believe in either. I don't believe in a monstrous tyrant who capriciously visits suffering on the earth— or who sets in motion some determinist system which leads inexorably and unavoidably to acts of terrorism, war, and other violence. But I do still want to know where to lay the blame for all that suffering, and I'm not sure that pointing the finger away from God and at evolution entirely removes the problem. As Stephen Fry well knows, the wisdom traditions of all the major world religions have been wrestling with the problem of theodicy, as it is called, for millennia. People of faith are no stranger to the question of how to sustain any kind of belief in God in the face of suffering, and have long faced the conundrum of whether all attempts to do so simply end up making God monstrous which brings us to the book of Lamentations. This week is the fourth, and some of you may be glad to know, penultimate sermon in our Lenten series looking at the little red book of the Bible that makes the depressing psalms read like happy ditties. This week we rejoin the lamenting poet in the ruins of Jerusalem. The Babylonians have done their worst, the temple is destroyed, the city is devastated and the ruling elite have been taken into exile. A famine has now set in and people are dying in the streets of the holy city. The language used to evoke this situation is heartbreaking and stands as some of the most beautiful yet bleak poetry of all time. The precious children of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, are reckoned as earthen pots. The tongue of the infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them anything. Those who feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple cling to ash heaps. Happier were those pierced by the sword than those pierced by hunger, and perhaps most devastating of all, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. This is the biblical equivalent of the current late-night news reports of the growing famine in East Africa as the unflinching gaze of the camera brings starving children, dehumanized mothers, and despairing fathers right into our living rooms to challenge our own security and to hold us to our humanity. And who is to blame for all of this? That is the question on the lips of the poet of ancient Jerusalem just as it is the question on our lips as we see suffering, starvation and sorrow in our own world. We search for a reason. We long for culpability to be declared. So is God to blame? If God does exist... Should we turn on him in the white heat of our anger, demanding mercy, judgment, or indeed any response beyond clinical calm disinterest? Well, maybe. The poet of Lamentations certainly has God firmly in his sights as he fires his words into the void of history. Here, verse 11. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. So maybe that's it then. Maybe God did do it. God, if there is a God, maybe he's to blame. Maybe it is his fault. Except I can't help but feel this answer is too easy. I long to stand with Stephen Fry to pass the responsibility of it all to God and then to walk away from him and stand in rational post-faith fury at the futility of faith, taking such crumbs of comfort as my post-enlightenment cosmology can offer me whilst devoting myself to works of humanity and justice. But I don't see that it helps It's too easy an answer, or maybe it's no answer at all. I'm not quite sure which yet. But the question remains hanging in the air like a disconcerting, discord-awaiting resolution. Thankfully, the poet of Lamentations doesn't leave it there either. God, if God there is, is certainly angry in Lamentations, but angry at what and wrathful with whom? And here we enter the darkness of suffering at a different level. Jerusalem was always more than a city, more than a home for its inhabitants. Jerusalem was to be the embodiment of a dream, It was to be the light of the world. It was to be the place where God dealt with people. Jerusalem was to be the hope of the nations. It was to be the joy of the whole earth. and that dream had been betrayed. The city of peace had become a city of violence. The leaders of Jerusalem, her priests and prophets, had shed the blood of the righteous in the midst of the holy city. They had so far departed from their mandate to care for the people and to embody the gracious covenant between God and Israel, that they are held responsible for the downfall of the city at the hands of the Babylonians. It was the failure of leadership that led to the catastrophe. And simply pointing the finger at God and saying, he did it, starts to sound more like an attempt to offload guilt and responsibility than it does a theologically nuanced answer to the suffering of the people. It is too easy for us to make God the scapegoat in our efforts to avoid our own complicity in the suffering of others. And so the Babylonians, sensing the weakness at the heart of the Israelite position, did what empires will always do and swooped in to destroy the city. The analogy with Sodom offered in verse 6, the city mythically overthrown in a moment by divine fire, looks less and less relevant to the Jerusalem scenario of the 6th century BC. The citizens of Jerusalem were betrayed by weak self-serving leaders, which left them prey to a hostile military force seeking conquest and imperial expansion. It wasn't God's fault at all. Humans did it, and we still do it. And pointing the finger at God and saying it's his fault, and then walking away from him and ceasing to believe in him, doesn't absolve us. The current famine in Africa, the world's worst humanitarian crisis since 1945, according to the United Nations, is firmly the result of human activity. As Saudi Arabia and Iran conduct their proxy war in the Yemen, vast numbers of people are being displaced from their homes, their land, and their food sources. In Nigeria, Boko Haram, the Islamic extremist group, have driven 2.6 million people from their homes. South Sudan has been ravaged by a three-year civil war, leading the United Nations humanitarian chief, Stephen O'Brien, to conclude, the famine is man-made... Parties to the conflict are parties to the famine, as are those not interfering to make the famine stop. It's Jerusalem and Babylon all over again, and it's happening in our time and in our world. And this isn't God doing it. God is not to blame for the famine in Africa. It's us. It's humans. The present tragedy in Africa owes much to the history of European colonization and to the ineffective and corrupt leadership that flourished in the vacuum created by the withdrawal of Western powers. And when you factor in failed harvests due to the changing climate as a result of the developed world's consumption of fossil fuels, our collusion in this situation becomes ever more compelling. And it's not acceptable. For us to blame God for it, because to do that is to add cowardice to complicity. Similarly with acts of terrorism, including that which enacted itself on the streets of our city this week, God is too easy a target for our outrage and anger, as Julia Hartley Brewer demonstrated. She tweeted this week in the wake of the events in Westminster, can everyone please stop all this hashtag pray for London nonsense? It's these bloody stupid beliefs that help create this violence in the first place. According to her logic, the man in the car with the knife in Westminster is God's fault. And those who continue to turn to God are as responsible as he is. So taking the challenge seriously, should we pray and if so, how, and to whom. If we simply beseech God to end the famine, and cry out to him for the starving children, and ask him to take away the anger that burns in the heart of a violent and disturbed man, we are no better than the hired mourners of biblical times who were paid to shriek and beat their breasts at funerals. If we pray for the suffering of others, Without recognizing our own sinfulness, we make God our scapegoat, and in doing this we make him a monster unworthy of worship. Giles Fraser, writing in The Guardian this week, said that prayer is not a way of telling God the things he already knows, nor is it some act of collective lobbying, whereby the Almighty is encouraged to see the world from your perspective if you screw up your face really hard and wish it so. Forget Christopher Robin at the end of the bed, prayer is mostly about emptying your head and waiting for stuff to come clear. There is no secret formula, and holding people in your prayers is not wishful thinking. It's a sort of compassionate concentration where someone is deliberately thought about in the presence of the widest imaginable perspective, like giving them a mental cradling. But above all, prayer is often just a jolly good excuse to shut up for a while and think. The adrenaline that comes from shock does not make for clear thinking or considered judgment, and those who rush to outrage say the stupidest things. Well said, Giles Fraser. All of this is not to say that God is not present in suffering. Historically speaking, the cup of suffering passed in time from Israel to Edom and the merry-go-round of imperial oppression turned on its axis as the strong became weak and the weak became strong. Edom's turn came and her betrayal of Israel was met with her own period of violence and suffering, as was Babylon's. No empire, it seems, can hold sway forever, and the collapse of power always engenders suffering in the population as the weak pay the price for the shortcomings of the powerful. And so the world shares the cup of suffering, and we pass it from hand to hand like a chalice of blood, each nation drinking deeply in its turn from the wine of destruction. Empires sow the seeds of their own downfall, and they reap the harvest of their suffering, and the cycle seems endless through history, from ancient Israel to East Africa to our own city. Which brings us to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, quoting Lamentations as he prays My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Where is God in the midst of suffering? He's here in Gethsemane, drinking the cup of suffering with the rest of humanity. This surely is the message at the heart of the incarnation. This is what links the birth of the baby in the manger with the death of the man on the cross at Good Friday. In the book of Lamentations, the Jewish king, the Lord's anointed, is taken into the pit This is almost certainly the king Zedekiah, who fled from Jerusalem into the desert through a breach in the city walls and was captured by the Babylonians. The second book of Kings tells the story of what happens to him next. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in fetters and took him to Babylon. This moment of personal torment and torture for one man was also the end of a national dream for a king of David to rule over the people of David in the capital of David forevermore. It's the ultimate moment of defeat, and not just for the people of Jerusalem, it was the end of the dream of a people of God in Jerusalem. The covenant project of God with us failed in that moment at the hands of the Babylonians when they killed the king of David, which is what makes the last two verses of chapter 4 so startling. The siege and destruction of Jerusalem is complete. The ideology of the city is shattered along with its walls and its hope has died as its king has gone into exile. And into this hopelessness, the lamenting poet offers a glimmer of hope. One day, too, this shall pass. The wheel will turn. The cup of suffering will go to the next person. The world will move on because God has not yet finished with humanity. But that's a story for another day, for another week. We can't get to Easter too soon. We must sit with Jesus in the garden with the cup of suffering at his lips. We must sit with the disciples as they see Jesus betrayed and beaten and recognize their own complicity in his sufferings. We must sit with the Marys at the foot of the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem as hope departs once again from the world. We must sit in the long exile of Holy Saturday as the world waits in suffering and darkness and all hope is lost. And who is to blame? Who nailed Jesus to the cross? Was this God visiting the sins of the world on his only begotten innocent son? I don't think so. A God who would do that is a monster not worthy of worship. Stephen Fry is right worthy perhaps only of fear or disbelief. No, we nailed Jesus to the cross. You did it, and I did it. We are the centurions here. We bear the guilt. But, and here's the hope, God does not leave us in our fallen, broken, guilty humanity. The miracle of the one on the cross is that he is God with us, suffering alongside us, taking our guilt and shame upon himself and forgiving us our sins. I have long thought that if we find ourselves wondering where God is in the midst of human suffering and pain, we probably don't have to look very far to find him. This is the God of the cross, after all, the God of the incarnation, the God who comes to us in Jesus and transforms our story. So today, as we continue to grapple with this difficult and depressing and bleak, ancient poem of Lamentations, and as we address the issues that it raises for us in the way we live in this difficult, dark, bleak, and depressing world, as we stare long into the abyss of despair and sit with those whose hope has all gone, and as we are confronted with our own guilt and complicity in the suffering of our world, let's allow ourselves a moment of quiet repentance. And let us dare to hope that God has not yet, not quite finished with us also.
2: God of love and of life, God of our hope, forgive us when we use our prayers as ways of hiding. Forgive us when we convince ourselves that we've prayed and that's enough. Forgive us when we look at the neat and tidy cross above us and think it's all been sorted. Forgive us when we push the blame onto others, onto you, and walk away to live purer, clearer, simpler lives. Forgive us, too, when we involve ourselves in being so busy and so active that we forget to pray. Forgive us when we keep ourselves and our guilt and our complicity and our capacity to inflict suffering so well hidden from ourselves that we end up broadcasting it to the entire world through our actions and our inactions. So now in these moments, give us as much self-knowledge as we can handle, so that we may be more fully who you call us to be. And as we look up at your cross, neat and tidy, clean and safe. So too we hold in our minds, our hearts, our imaginations a world which is anything but neat and tidy and clean and safe and where we know, we trust, we hope your cross and all that it means is present. And before you we remember the children who starve and the mothers who weep, and the fathers who are angry. And before you, we remember those whose actions have led to the famine, including our own. And before you, we remember those who carry guns and knives and hope to destroy And before you, we acknowledge the anger we each carry. And before you, we remember the broken bodies on our own streets and in other streets around the world, in the cities in Gaza and in Mosul and in South Sudan and in Yemen and in places too numerous to mention, And before you, we remember those who have given up hope, for they see no possibility of love and life and change. And as we look up at your cross and see represented in it your broken body and your refusal to give in to violence and your bearing of pain, and your presence in the heart of our suffering. So we pray. pray. We pray for all those who refuse to give up hope, who go on loving and acting, who choose life in the face of death, and who will not keep silent. And we pray, call us to be among them. And count us worthy to be your people, serving you for the coming of your kingdom. As we pray for our world, so today we ask, make us the answer to the prayers of others, that your name may be glorified. Amen.